from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. and welcome back to the Didactic Syncast. This is a special bonus encore presentation of the Didactic Syncast. And uh, this time I'm going to talk to you about East Timor. Uh, this is a little different from the usual Syncast. So if this is the first time you've listened to the show, uh, please know that this isn't the standard format that I do uh, each week. Um, but I've had a number of people who have expressed an interest in hearing me talk about what happened in East Timor, and it's a situation that's very important to me. It has everything to do with who I am and how I see the world and how I met my wife and uh, why I'm a teacher and, and, and why I believe it's important for human beings to take action uh, to make the world a better place and my belief that we can make a difference uh, and even save lives uh, simply by writing letters. Um, I have prepared a slideshow to go along with this, so I'm going to be referring to that from time to time. If you don't have access to a computer while you're listening, uh, you should still be able to follow the story, but there are a lot of visual aids that will be useful. And if you go to my website, fbesp.org slash synapse, um, you'll see a uh, link on the sidebar to uh, find the slideshow here. I should also say that I wrote most of the Wikipedia article about the Indonesian, in, uh, excuse me, the Indonesian occupation of East Timor, uh, which is certified as a good article, which means that it's been reviewed by other editors and and been classified as being basically sound in its uh, citations of sources and and neutral point of view, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of other people have helped out with that article, so I will uh, say thank you to them. Um, yeah, and if you want more information about all of this, I encourage you to check out the website of the East Timor and Indonesia Action Network, which is etan.org. Uh, they're, they're a really fantastic U.S.-based uh, solidarity organization, and uh, there's a local organization that I'm a part of called the uh, Madison Inaro Sister City Alliance, as well as the Medical Aid for East Timor website. Uh, those two projects together are at a website called aideasttimor.org. That's A-I-D-E-A-S-T-T-I-M-O-R. .org, and again, there's links to all that stuff on my website. So, um, let's go ahead and get started. Assuming that you're looking at the slideshow, I'm going to go ahead and talk about this flag that you're seeing here, first of all. It is the flag of East Timor. Uh, it is a flag that was until very recently. Oh, and I should say, before we get started, I'm going to be talking very quickly. I've been through this presentation a lot. I give it to my classes every semester, and I've probably delivered this uh, presentation about 100 times, all told by now, if not more. And uh, there's a lot of information to cover, and I'm doing this on my winter break, so I'm trying to get through it quickly because I have other things that I'd like to do during my break as well. Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, hopefully I won't forget anything and I won't move too quickly for people to keep track of. So, the flag that you see there is uh, the, the picture. It, it's, it's, it's a flag that was illegal to fly in East Timor for many years for reasons that will become soon apparent. Um, I have a, a version of this flag up in my home right behind me right now while I'm recording this podcast. Uh, it's right behind me, and uh, I have shoes with that flag on it. It's a very important flag to me. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a powerful image, I believe, of resistance and the human desire to be free and the will to overcome violence through nonviolence and a lot of other things as well. Next slide. This is the world, Earth, the planet where you currently live. Let's look at the uh, 
continent, shall we? Uh, upper left corner is, of course, North America. South America in yellow. Over in the middle is Europe. Uh, southern part of the middle of this map is Africa. The Middle East is there in green. And then in blue, we have Asia. And then down below is Australia. And then, of course, at the very bottom is Antarctica. But it's in white on this map, so you can't really see it. Let's zoom in on uh, the Middle East for a moment. I first found out about East Timor. This is the next slide now. Uh, the, 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 I first found out about East Timor in the early 90s. There was a conflict going on between the United States and Iraq. Uh, and that conflict had to do with Iraq invading Kuwait. After World War One, the British and other forces uh, basically split up what is now the Middle East and said, okay, this country will be Iraq, this country will be Kuwait, and split up a bunch of other places as well. And um, Iraq believed that, well, Saddam Hussein and other people in Iraq believed that Kuwait was uh, unjustly split off from Iraq because of its oil resources. So Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Next slide. When Iraq invaded Kuwait, uh, the United Nations Security Council did what it always does. It issued a resolution saying, Oi, Iraq, you are in violation of the UN Charter. No nation may use violence or the threat of violence to resolve a conflict, period, end of discussion. No nation is allowed to invade another nation. That's basically what the UN Charter says. And so when one nation invades another one, the UN Security Council, this picture, uh, this group pictured here, uh, they always issue the same resolution. Well, when they issued that resolution, Saddam Hussein, next slide, uh, Saddam Hussein said, bite me. What are you going to do about it, right? And the question then became, okay, what is going to happen next? And what happened next was the United States, led by, next slide, George W., excuse me, George H.W. Bush, uh, the senior, said, we're going to make you get out of Iraq, uh, Kuwait. And there was a lot of um, stories coming out of Kuwait about uh, Iraqi soldiers doing horrible things, some of which were true, some of which were very overblown. And... Um, the, the case was made to go to war, and George Bush Sr. at the time said, we are looking at a clear-cut case of good versus evil, right versus wrong, and his Secretary of Defense said, uh, uh, big nations with powerful military should not be allowed to invade, occupy, and brutalize their small peaceful neighbors. And the general feeling around the United States and many other parts of the world was, we can't allow this naked aggression on the part of Saddam Hussein to, to go unchecked, and we can't allow, you know, we can't reward a dictator, and we have to respond to Saddam Hussein's invasion. So, uh, the United States, along with Canada and Great Britain, Germany, France, and Saudi Arabia, and lots of other countries, got together and created this huge coalition uh, to force Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. And it worked. Next slide. We saw some amazing footage of, of uh, 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 bombs sh shooting down air vents and, and uh, high-tech uh, weaponry going on. And it was a massive victory for the United States and the allied nations. And they forced Iraq out of Kuwait. And uh, the, George Bush Sr. said, this is the dawning of a new world order where international law will be supreme and will never allow anybody else to flout or defy international law or the will of the international community. Well, it was at that time, when I was a junior in high school, that I read a tiny little article in a magazine called Utney Reader. And that article was headlined, What About East Timor? And I had never heard of East Timor, so I read it. And the article basically said, If the United States is so interested in international law and justice and human rights, why is it the U.S. has never done anything about what was going on in East Timor? And I had never heard of East Timor, of course, so I wanted to know more. I began investigating it. 
And uh, what I found shocked and horrified me, and it changed the entire way I view the whole world. And uh, it's, a, it's a change that lasts until this very day, and I can't see myself ever changing in, uh, back to the way I used to see the world. Of course, I continue to evolve my worldview. But the story of East Timor, as I learned, was a powerful case study in uh, why we have to uh, be very skeptical when we are fed the official version of how history happens and how the United States sees itself and why it does what it does. Next slide. Uh, so here's Asia. Um, we, it, our story really begins in the 19... And 1975 is really where the story of East Timor heats up, uh, but we're going to move around in history a little bit uh, before we get to that point. Uh, China, of course, uh, and Russia is at the very top. China, moving southward, uh, we have um, Burma, Thailand, uh, Vietnam, uh, the Philippines, and then the, at the very bottom of, of Asia, the southeasternmost point of Asia, is a, a huge archipelago of 14,000 islands known as Indonesia, and uh, Papua New Guinea is nearby, and then uh, down southern more we have Australia. So let's zoom into the Indonesian archipelago. Next slide. Uh, Indonesia, as I say, 14,000 islands. Uh, until 1945, it was ruled by the Dutch, and it was known as the Dutch East Indies. And uh, they, they established a colonial presence in, in the manner of colonial presences all over the world. You know what colonialism was like. They would show up. They would say, okay, we're going to take these resources. And then depending on the amount of resistance from the natives, they would kill a whole bunch of people. And they would say that, you know, we run this place. And sometimes they would build some roads and churches and schools and things. But mostly um, it was about taking resources. Yeah. Well, uh, at the very end of the Indonesian archipelago is an island called Timor, and it's about 400 miles northwest of Australia, and the Dutch and the Portuguese showed up on the island of Timor at about pretty much the same time, and they fought for a little while, and uh, eventually they decided just to split it. And uh, the Portuguese had first landed at the little enclave on the left uh, called Okusi, and then they decided they liked it better in Dili, so they moved over there to make that the capital of East Timor. And uh, so Indonesia, excuse me, the, the Dutch and the Portuguese agreed to just split the island like a jigsaw puzzle. And the uh, Portuguese got to keep Okusi, and they also got the little tiny island up top called Otoro. And uh, so for several hundred years, that was the arrangement between the Dutch and the Portuguese. The Dutch said, we will have the western part of Timor, as well as the other 13,900 99 islands, and uh, the Portuguese would have East Timor, or Timor-Leste, as they say in Portuguese. Well, uh, the Portuguese, uh, next slide, the Portuguese were pretty hands-off Timor in terms of their colonial rule. Uh, again, they would show up every once in a while and say, hey, aren't we great? Give us a parade. And the Timorese would say, hooray for the Portuguese. And they'd wear their finest taish weavings, which is a, a, a traditional style of weaving here. Uh, you can see them wearing them. Uh, that, that style of weaving uh, has served as a kind of... Um, cultural landmark and a symbol of the resistance through fabric uh, throughout the Indonesian occupation, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. But uh, anyway, the article about Taish on the Wikipedia uh, page, uh, I wrote part of that as well, so that can give you some more information about that form of weaving, how it's done, uh, common colors, and so forth. I have a lot of Taish weavings. We have them all over our house, and I have one in my classroom. Uh, it is a very important style of fabric. I, I don't think I have many other styles of fabric that are important to me. Uh, Usually it's cheap, does it last, and does it look alright, uh, but Taish uh, is, is the type of weaving that is most important to me in the world. Anyway, uh, the Portuguese also built some churches, uh, you know, they're trying to impose Catholicism, and the Timorese said, yeah, whatever, we'll stick with our animism and our, you know, various, uh, you know, traditional uh, spiritual practices, uh, and that's the way it was un until uh, the Portuguese left, which we'll get to later on. 
Next slide. Uh, this guy, General Suharto, came to... Okay, so in 1945, uh, a guy named Sukarno uh, led the people of Indonesia in a revolt of independence to cast off the Dutch. And it worked. And they gained their independence. And he united all 14,000 islands uh, of what is now Indonesia. And they declared an independent Indonesian republic. Well, in 1965, Sukarno was overthrown by this guy, General Suharto, and he's there in the military uniform, and the story of Suharto's rise to power is a horribly violent story, uh, worthy of its own telling, but I'm not the one to tell it. Uh, John Rusa is a really amazing academic who can, uh, he studied uh, Suharto's rise to power more than anyone in the United States, probably, and so if you ever meet John Rusa or you ever read anything by him, uh, he can probably tell you more about... Uh, Suharto's rise to power. Basically, he killed about half a million people in Indonesia uh, who he's accused of being communists. And um, because he was so staunchly opposed to communism, a lot of people in the Western world, uh, in the United States and European leaders and Australian leaders as well, uh, very much supported Suharto. And they said that uh, one, one U.S. military official said he's our kind of guy. And... Uh, he he was seen as a, a a friend of the West because he was friendly to capitalist interests. And so he said he was killing all communists. Well, of course, it turns out that a lot of the people that he killed on his way to the top were student organizers and labor rights activists and, and, and other uh, people who were left of center or left of, uh, you know, Mussolini. But the point is that because he said he was fighting communism, uh, the West very much supported him. And I would love to go into more detail here, but we have to move on. The point is that even when Suharto took power in 1965, uh, the Dutch had said that East Timor belonged to Portugal. Uh, when Sukarno took power in Indonesia, he said that the East Timor belonged to Portugal. It was not part of Indonesia. When Suharto came to power in 1965, he also said East Timor is separate from Indonesia. Uh, different language, different culture, different customs, uh, different people, etc., etc. The, the understanding was Portugal, you have East Timor, it's not part of our country, and it should never be part of our country. Well, uh, all of that discussion sort of fell apart in 1974, when the Portuguese uh, colonial government collapsed. Uh, the, basically, the Portuguese government itself collapsed, and they found themselves having to leave all of their colonies, uh, Brazil and Mozambique, and then they left East Timor. Well, the question, of course, is what happens next? And in the case of East Timor, there was a power vacuum. There was nobody in charge. I always like to tell my students, imagine if I left the room and you had to stay here, who would be in charge? And then usually three people raise their hand, and I would be in charge, and then they start squabbling with each other. No, you wouldn't come over here and say that. And I say, well, exactly. That's exactly what happened in East Timor. There was a small-scale civil war. About 400 people were killed. And um, they... Uh, the the it, it was it, there were several groups uh, vying for supremacy in the newly independent East Timor or the the newly um, power you know uh, power vacuumed East Timor I should say and at the end of it a group called Fredolin which was left of center uh, they focused their uh, philosophy of governing on basically Catholicism uh, and um, they were accused by some of being communist. Now, we'll come back to the communist question in just a moment. There's not a lot of evidence that Fredolin was communist in nature at the time. Um, and, yeah. So, the point is, of course, that that was used as a pretext. As soon as Fredolin declared an independent East Timor... Uh, Suharto began to change his tune, and he began looking at the possibility of invading and annexing East Timor to make it part of Indonesia. Next slide. Which brings us to these two gentlemen. The man on the left is Gerald Ford, who was President of the United States in 1975, and the man on the right is his Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger. And 
they met with Suharto uh, on, they were coming back from China and they swung through Indonesia to meet with Suharto. And Suharto said to them, uh, we're planning to take over East Timor. What do you think? And Gerald Ford said, according to people who were at the meeting, and there's a lot of documentation on the Wikipedia article about this, um, Gerald Ford uh, was said to have given the green light for the invasion, quote-unquote green light. Uh, he said apparently that we understand what you have planned and we have no objections to it. Of course, the United States was very uh, influential in the reason, and it's important to remember that the U.S. had, of course, just... Uh, the U.S. was in the process of leaving Vietnam at this time, having lost that war, and uh, worried about the threat of communism spreading to other parts of Southeast Asia, the fear of the domino effect was in full force. Uh, Kissinger was very worried about the spread of communism. And so when Suharto said this is a communist menace in East Timor, uh, Ford, and Suharto, uh, Ford and Kissinger were only too ready to believe him. And uh, so they had two concerns. They said, first of all, wait till we're gone. And because uh, Ford was worried that it would look bad if Indonesia began invading another nation while the U.S. president was still there. And Kissinger especially said, please make sure it's quick. Uh, we don't, we, you know, if it drags on for a long time, people will start to wonder where Indonesia has gotten its weaponry from. And everybody at that meeting, of course, knew very well that 90% of the weapons and the military hardware and the airplanes and the, the naval craft that Indonesia was using at the time had come from the United States. Uh, so some people haven't described Indonesia as a client state of the U.S. at the time. Uh, whether you agree with that assessment or not, there's no question that the U.S. was very supportive of Indonesia at the time. And there's a lot of there's a lot to be said about how supportive Australia was at the time, um, and we can come back to that later. There are a lot of questions about mineral resources, especially oil, in the area, the excuse me, the sea between East Timor and Australia, what's known as the Timor Gap. And... Um, there are a lot of other factors as well. I won't speculate on those. I'll encourage you to investigate them when you have some time. Next slide. So Ford and Suharto met, and they had their photo ops and their special ceremonies, and Ford put on the beautiful Indonesian flowers. And then as soon as it was uh, over, the next day on uh, December 7th, 1975, uh, the, uh, Ford, the Air Force One took off, and Indonesia invaded East Timor. Next slide. December 7th, 1975, uh, a, a date which will live in infamy, of course, not only because of Pearl Harbor, but also because of East Timor. Um, that first day of the invasion, thousands of people in East Timor were killed. Uh, we'll never know exactly how many because there had been journalists in East Timor to cover this new nation that was coming about. But as soon as Indonesia invaded or they began inv to invade, uh, all the journalists left, with one exception, whom we'll talk about in just a moment. The Indonesian military moved in and they just began killing everyone who looked like they might pose a threat to the Indonesian occupation. Uh, there was a small-scale resistance force led by Fredolin, but they really didn't have any serious way of fighting back against the Indonesian military. Uh, the Indonesian military was very well-armed, very well-trained, uh, basically bankrolled by the United States military, and um, as a result, the, uh, the East Timorese were powerfully outmatched, outgunned, outnumbered. Uh, and this is an important time to return to the question of communism. Because if East Timor had been a communist nation, surely they could have counted on some support from China, Vietnam, the Soviet Union, Cuba. That's what communists do. They stick together. An injury to one is an injury of, to all. And there's no way that a communist nation like China, the Soviet Union, would have watched East Timor uh, get trampled under the Indonesian boot without trying to help in some way. But of course, East Timor did not receive any help from any of those nations, and in fact, they were basically alone. Uh, 
when they were trying to uh, ward off the Indonesian military, and as a result, the military set up their hegemony basically in a day. However, uh, it wasn't a total hegemony, and they were not able to um, crush the spirit of resilience and, and, and resistance that the Timorese showed for the next 20 years. Uh, and in fact, uh, one Indonesian general had said, we are going to have breakfast in Dili in the northern part of the country, a lunch in Ainaro in the middle, and then dinner in Baokao over on the right side in the east. And uh, they thought it would be over, you know, in instantly lickety split, but of course it was not. However, there was a lot of killing in those first days. Uh, thousands and thousands of people in East Timor were killed during the first days uh, in December 1975. They would, t the Indonesian military would take uh, academics, uh, intellectuals, um, uh, people who were rumored to be part of the resistance in some shape or form. Uh, they would take them up to the cliffs, a very mountainous country there, overlooking the sea, and they would shoot them one at a time. In the back of the head, they would fall forward into the ocean, and some people said that the sea ran red with blood. Meanwhile, everyone who was standing around watching had to count off one at a time. In in order to uh, hammer home the point about how uh, how many people had died and how serious it would be if anybody tried to resist the Indonesian military. Next slide. Um, so in the years that ensued, things got pretty bad pretty quickly. Uh, there was, a, a, you know, massive waves of killing by the Indonesian military, including something called the Fences of Legs operation, where they basically moved across the entire island uh, flank to flank, and anybody they found hiding in the mountains, it was assumed, of course, you must be a member of the resistance, so they killed them uh, or took them away for questioning and torture and other things. Uh, pretty gruesome spectacle. Next slide. Uh, East Timor quickly became known as the Land of Crosses. Uh, there was, uh, there, it was very hard to find out what was going on. The Red Cross was not allowed in in those first years. Uh, people basically weren't allowed out. Occasionally, we would see people in Australia uh, show up in very leaky boats in the same way that in the United States. Sometimes Cuban refugees will show up in Florida uh, clinging to a, a decrepit car or what have you. Uh, and they would tell the story about their family being killed and what have you. Occasionally, people, uh, human rights activists or, you know, international solidarity uh, supporters would go to East Timor pretending to be tourists. Uh, and they would uh, be approached by someone from East Timor. And the person would say, hey, come here to this graveyard. You notice anything about the tombstones? And the, the so-called tourist would say, yeah, everyone here died on the same day. And the Timorese person would say, yes, this used to be a village. And they just came in and they just obliterated the whole thing. And now it's a, a graveyard. Um, next slide. So what did the UN Security Council do? Well, as I said before, the UN Security Council always does the same thing when one nation invades another. Uh, in the case of East Timor, the UN Security Council issued a resolution saying, Indonesia, you must leave East Timor right now. No nation may use violence or the threat of violence to resolve a difference, and you're not allowed to invade another nation, period, end of discussion. Just get out. And, of course, Indonesia said, no, we're not leaving. And then the question became, of course, as it would in the case of Iraq and Kuwait many years later, the question became, what next? And that brings us to this man. Next slide. This is Daniel Patrick Moynihan. He was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations in 1975 when Indonesia invaded East Timor. And he wrote many years later, and I'm quoting from memory now, so it may not be perfect word for word, but I'm pretty sure I'm getting the gist of it right. The White House wished to make sure that the United Nations prove utterly ineffective in whatever measures it undertook to get Indonesia to leave East Timor. It was a task that was given to me, and I carried it forward with no inconsiderable success. End quote. 
So he was very proud of the fact that he had kept the United Nations from doing its job of trying to get Indonesia to leave East Timor. And there's a lot of speculation if the U.S. hadn't blocked action at the U.N., would the U.N. have been able to get Indonesia to leave East Timor? Would we have avoided all of the horrible killing and bloodshed? We don't know. But there's no question that, uh, you know, according to the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, uh, it w- the U.S. government, the Ford government, wanted to make sure that Indonesia was not forced to leave East Timor. And again, there's a lot of reasons why that is. Uh, the question of why is one I won't, well, I won't really speculate on here. I encourage you to investigate it. There are lots of things that a lot of people have said about why the United States was so adamant in its support of uh, Indonesia. Uh, communism is certainly a factor. Oil is certainly a factor. Um, geopolitical strategy is certainly a factor. Uh, we, we felt horrible uh, as a nation after losing the Vietnam War. And there's no question that we were eager to support a winning team for once. Um, there's a lot of things we could talk about in terms of why I'm not going to I'm going to stick mostly to what actually happened and let you explore the why for yourself. Anyway, uh, as a result of U.S. action blocking U.N. action uh, and, and other factors, I don't want to pretend like it's just the U.S. that kept the, the Indonesia in East Timor, but it was a, it was a big factor. Um, as I say, things got pretty bad pretty quickly. Next slide. Um, I mentioned that there were some journalists uh, who left East Timor as soon as the new nation was declared, but when Indonesia was um, preparing to move in, they all left, uh, with the exception of one, and that's this man, Greg Shackleton was a journalist from the Australian Broadcasting Company, and he was in a tiny village called Balabo. And he was interviewing some uh, men in these, you know, uh, grass huts, and uh, they were asking him why. Why is the world watching this happen and doing nothing about it? After all, wasn't it the case after World War II that we all said, never again, we are never going to allow uh, genocide and, and mass killings and massacres and bloodshed to take place without the world responding? Well, of course, in a larger 20th century context, you can ask Armenians, you can ask um, Rwandans, uh, you can ask people in Kosovo how well we've kept our promise. However, um, th- that was the question that was being asked of Greg Shackleton. Greg Shackleton and his five-man crew were killed by the Indonesian military. Um, it turns out the Australian government knew that they were in a lot of danger, but they did not say anything to try to protect him because uh, the Australian government and the Indonesian government were very close at the time, and uh, the Australians did not want to rock the boat. Greg Shackleton's wife, Shirley Shackleton, became a powerful crusader for the people of East Timor in, a, in an attempt to make her husband's memory stand out as a beacon of uh, human rights and justice. I should also say about Daniel Patrick Moynihan, but before we move on, that he later on realized that he had made a horrible mistake in uh, trying to block UN action. He became a supporter of the people of East Timor and uh, worked for many years to try to allow East Timor to vote for its future, which is what the people of East Timor wanted all along. Next slide. Uh, Army massacre and enforced starvation were wiping out the people of East Timor. It was absolutely hideous. One woman who had been at the Biafra starvation uh, crisis in the 1960s and 70s had said that when she came to East Timor in 76, I think it was, uh, she said that the starvation in East Timor was as bad as anything she had seen in sub-Saharan Africa. And this is a photograph of some children starving to death in the 
uh, late 70s in East Timor. Um, and what the Timor, uh, excuse me, the Indonesian military would do is they would go to a village that was suspected of supporting the resistance movement, and they would gather everyone into the center of town, and they would burn all the farmland in the areas around it, and they would refuse to let people leave. And then what can you do? You have no food, you can't leave, you starve to death. Uh, this is a very common tactic, and rationing of food supplies, uh, even denying food supplies, was a very common tactic to try to break the resistance. Um, they were unsuccessful in breaking the resistance, uh, but then again, of course, the resistance was very uh, hit and miss. You know, what was the resistance doing? Once in a while, it would come down from the mountains, it would ambush some uh, Indonesian soldiers, it would take one M16, and it would lose half of its men, and then they would uh, scamper back up into the mountains, eating leaves and sticks and what have you, and again, not getting any support from any government anywhere in the world. So, uh, yeah, the human rights workers were starting to be allowed into East Timor by the late 70s, uh, and they were shocked by the tragedy that was unfolding. Um, it was quite clear that a major catastrophe was going on. Um, by the mid-80s, Amnesty International was citing a figure of 200,000 people killed in East Timor uh, since 1975, and that's shocking by itself, but of course, if you remember that before the Indonesians invaded, uh, it was a figure of about 600,000 people living in East Timor. People were worried that a third of the population had been wiped out through army massacre and enforced starvation. Um, we now know that the number was probably around 150,000 people killed, uh, only, right, quote-unquote. Um, but that's still a quarter of the population, and people were using the word genocide in the late 80s to describe what was going on in East Timor because it was so dramatic and it was so intentional uh, what the Indonesian military was doing in East Timor. At the same time that they were uh, killing people off with massacres and enforced starvation, they were also engaged in a transmigration program from other parts of Indonesia into East Timor, and that was part of a larger Indonesian plan to try to distribute the population uh, to the lesser populated islands. Uh, so it wasn't specific to East Timor. However, there was a, a rather important political component to that transmigration program. Because the thinking was, if East Timor eventually got the right to vote, should we be part of Indonesia? Should we be an independent nation in an officially recognized manner? Uh, then the hope was, among some Indonesian officials, that they could flood East Timor with so many people from other parts of Indonesia that the vote would be irrelevant, everybody would vote to join with Indonesia, and it would be just a de facto uh, way of subsuming the people of East Timor or basically wiping them out. At the same time, uh, occasionally there were these health clinics where the women of East Timor were encouraged to get inoculations against mumps and rubella and, and, and other diseases, and uh, what they were actually receiving was Depo-Provera, a birth control drug. As a consequence, some people viewed that as another element of this whole genocide thing, the attempt to kind of wipe the people of East Timor off the face of the earth altogether. Next slide. Lest you think that this is something to do with... Uh, the, the red state, blue state dichotomy we've come to understand so well in the United States uh, in recent years, whether it's Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, let me assure you that the situation in East Timor had nothing to do with any of that. Uh, quite the opposite, in fact. Uh, Gerald Ford was a Republican, and he, of course, as I say, gave the green light for the invasion. He was followed by Jimmy Carter, who was a Democrat. And in fact, Jimmy Carter's presidency was particularly tragic in light of the Timorese uh, genocide because he said when he was running for office that human rights was going to be at the center of his foreign policy. And yet, when it came to Indonesia and East Timor, he increased armed shipments to the Suharto regime as they were carrying out the worst atrocities and the mass murders and the starvation killings during that atrocity. 
Next slide, Ronald Reagan, as you see here, was a very good friend of Suharto. And of course, Ronald Reagan was a very adamant uh, opponent of all things communist. And so he believed firmly that Suharto was carrying out God's work in fighting against the dreaded communist menace. And so he continued to increase armed shipments to in East Indonesia and send more weapons and planes and training of soldiers and so forth. Uh, next slide, he was followed, of course, by George Bush Sr. Uh, he was... Um, uh, uh, also, again, you know, supportive of Indonesia, even though he was saying that Iraq and Kuwait showed us how the United States will always stand up for justice and international law and so forth and so on. And it was when I started learning all this that I realized that Utney Reader article I had read was wrong. The United States had not been silent or inactive on the situation of East Timor. We had been supporting Indonesia the entire time. We were on the wrong side of history. We were supporting the bad guys. Next slide. Bill Clinton was also friends with Suharto. And as you can see, Suharto uh, had a very long reign of power. And uh, Bill Clinton uh, saw Indonesia as a very important trading partner. And of course, by this time, the Berlin Wall had fallen, uh, the Soviet Union had collapsed, and the threat of communism wasn't really taken very seriously in many places of the world. However, uh, now the question of international business relationships became supreme. And that had sort of been at the root of the question between capitalists and communists all along. And so it's no surprise that Bill Clinton thought of Indonesia as a really excellent partner for U.S. businesses. Of course, you all know about uh, Nike shoes being made in Indonesia and um, e East Asian um, workers getting paid very, very little uh, for their labor and um, the crushing of independent unions and so on and so forth. There's a lot of other things we could say about economics in this situation. However, uh, sticking purely to the geopolitical Bill Clinton at one point was visiting uh, General Suharto in Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia, and uh, there were some East Timorese students who were studying in Jakarta. I believe this was 1994, but don't quote me on the year. Anyway, these East Timorese students uh, staged a hunger strike outside the building where Clinton was going to be meeting with Suharto at great personal risk. There's no telling what they were risking here uh, by making a public statement against the Indonesian occupation. Uh, they All they wanted to do was meet with Clinton and raise some awareness, and Bill Clinton walked right past them, didn't even look at them or talk to them. So that let us know just how seriously Bill Clinton, a Democrat, was taking the whole question of human rights. Next slide. Uh, yeah, so all the most horrible things you've ever heard of uh, pretty much anybody, any dictator around the world, um, uh, Saddam Hussein, um, Joseph Stalin, um, you know, I didn't get to the part of Hitler, obviously, and, and maybe it's not fair to compare the Indonesian regime at this time to Stalin, but um, certainly, you know, the most horrible tactics of torture and, and violence and disappearances, um, things that Noriega did, things that, um, you know, uh, Pinochet in Chile did, uh, things that we always oppose and we always use as examples of how horrible totalitarian regimes are, all of those things were going on in East Timor. Rape was used as a political weapon. Uh, torture was very commonplace. This is a picture, as you can see, of a Indonesian soldier in camo fatigues holding a lit cigarette to the face of a young Timorese man. Uh, he is handcuffed to a chair, and there is a wire around his neck, presumably carrying electricity. There are other photographs like this available on the Internet. If you have the strong stomach to search for them, you can find many others like it. Um, as I say, women were especially uh, prosecuted and persecuted uh, for their... Um, 
involvement or suspected involvement of themselves or anybody else in their family uh, in the resistance movement or even, you know, hints of resistance uh, were punished sometimes with rape. Uh, there is a very powerful book called Buibere, uh, which has women of East Timor telling their stories about what they endured during the Indonesian occupation. Uh, and again, it's it's not a pretty picture. It's, it's full of ghastly horror stories um, that people knew about. You know, again, these photographs were not available only to a select few individuals on the planet. These were leaked to the human rights community and the journalistic community overall, and if you watch the film Manufacturing Consent, uh, Noam Chomsky and the media, there's a very powerful segment there which looks at the kind of press coverage that the atrocities of Pol Pot in Cambodia were receiving at pretty much the same time as the atrocities that were happening in East Timor. And, uh, of course, the truth is that there, there was very little coverage of the atrocities happening in East Timor. And the reasons why, again, I will leave for you to explore. Next slide. Thus, things continued until the early 1990s when the story of East Timor began to become known more and more widely to people all over the world because of the hard work and of, of a few activists and journalists and also because of a few events that made it impossible for the world to ignore the atrocities of East Timor. This is the gravestone of Sebastião Gomes, who's a very important young man, uh, and we will talk about him in just a moment. Um... In 1991, there was a trip that was going to take place uh, to East Timor from the Vatican. The Pope himself was not going to go. He had visited East Timor earlier. Um, but there was a, an investigative uh, group that was going to be going to East Timor from the Vatican. And the reason for that is because uh, by this time, you know, early 90s, uh, East Timor is about 90% Catholic. Uh, I had mentioned that the Portuguese had set up Catholic churches uh, early on during the colonial regime. However, the East Timorese didn't really take to them uh, in the early days. But when Indonesia came in and they took over every other institution, the Catholic Church suddenly became the only place the people of East Timor felt like they were at all safe. Of course, if they had some sort of problems, if they were being uh, hurt, uh, family members disappeared or killed, they couldn't talk to the police, they couldn't talk to the military, they couldn't talk to the government, they couldn't talk to teachers in the schools. All of those institutions were run by the Indonesian military. The only uh, safe place was the church. And so, of course, the, the priests and the bishops and, the, and the, uh, the church officials in East Timor had been hearing, of course, all of these horror stories and experiencing many of the same horrors themselves. And so they uh, reported to their superiors, and eventually the Vatican began to understand that there was a very serious human rights atrocity going on in East Timor. In 1991, they were planning to visit East Timor and find out just for themselves exactly what was going on there. Well, naturally, if they're going to make such a trip, they needed to clear it with the Indonesian military. And the Indonesian military said, Oh, of course, we'd love to have you see what's really going on in East Timor and find out for yourself what is true and what's a bunch of propaganda from the resistance movements. Uh, now, you can't go to this village and you can't talk to these people and you can't bring this journalist you want to bring because she's going to ask the wrong questions. And you can't go to this part of the country and you can't see this place and you can't go here. And eventually the Vatican organization said, forget it. We're not going to bother going. It will look like a whitewash. It will look like we were approving about what's going on and we won't be able to learn the actual truth. So never mind. We're not going. Well, that was a bit devastating to the people of East Timor because they were preparing to tell the world about their story. And in a tragic and horrifying and yet very important way, they were able to do that. And it's because there were a few journalists who made it to East Timor for the visit of the Vatican uh, delegation. And uh, that brings us to our journalist cadre. Next slide. 
The man on the left is Alan Nairn. He was an independent journalist at the time working for New York Magazine. The woman on the right was Amy Goodman. Uh, she is Amy Goodman, excuse me. She continues to be an amazing journalist. They both are, really. Uh, Alan Nairn uh, sort of pops up every once in a while like a whack-a-mole and then reports on something going on in the world and disappears again. He's a, he's a very... Um, clandestine journalist, I guess we could say. He's an amazing guy. I've met him several times. He's really remarkable. Uh, and I have something I need to tell you about him later on. Amy Goodman uh, has gone on to start a show called Democracy Now! And it's probably the most uh, important news source in the world today uh, because they cover not only the news that you'll hear on CNN and, and MSNBC and Fox News and ABC and CBS uh, and BBC and, and Al Jazeera and other news sources, but they also cover a lot of stuff that you won't get in those news sources. And she interviews a lot of people from all over the place, all sides of the political spectrum, Democrat, Republican, left wing, right wing, uh, you know, far left, far right. Uh, she's willing to talk to everybody and, and sort of get to the truth. Her, her real mission is to expose the truth about what's going on and to uh, support the cause of democracy around the world in all of its guises and its various forms. And she's an amazing lady. I've also met her and uh, she's really astounding in terms of what a person is capable of when they are committed to uh, doing a job and doing it well. You can watch Democracy Now! five days a week, Monday through Friday. They're entirely uh, uh, listener and audience-supported, community-supported uh, news. It's an amazing show, democracynow.org. I can't recommend enough that you check out their website. They have a podcast. Uh, there's a video feed Monday through Friday, as I say, a full hour of news and interviews. It's really excellent. I, I highly recommend their show. So Alan and Amy were in East Timor in... November of 1991, there to cover the delegation from the Vatican. They were joined by, next slide, uh, a guy named Max Stahl, who's a Canadian filmmaker, a uh, very interesting-looking guy, and he's a very uh, intriguing fellow. Anyway, uh, they were all in East Timor in November of 1991, and when they found out that the delegation from the Vatican had been canceled, they were sort of annoyed. Well, what are we supposed to cover now? They said, what's going on in East Timor? And someone came to them and said, I'm going to slip back to the statue, the gravestone of Sebastio Gomez, uh, they said, this guy, Sebastio Gomez, has been killed. We're going to have a funeral for him tomorrow on November 12th. And Amy and Alan and Max said, who's Sebastio Gomez? Why is that important? Well, Sebastio Gomez was suspected of being a messenger for the resistance, um, and he was hiding in a, a church. Uh, he was 17 years old. He was hiding in the church, and uh, the Motel Church, the capital city of Dili, and uh, he thought he'd be safe in the church, but some uh, Timorese collaborators with the Indonesian military uh, dragged him outside, and then he was shot to death on the steps of the Motel Church. And because there were international journalists in East Timor, the next day, uh, a funeral was planned with something special added as well. Next slide. Back to Max Stahl. And if you flip over, you can see a picture from what happened next. And in fact, there's also a video footage that I'm going to link to. So I encourage you to pause the podcast right now and watch that video footage of uh, the Santa Cruz protest. Okay. Uh, whether you've watched the video or not, uh, if you have seen the video, you know what happened next. Uh, there was a there was a, an unfurling of, of banners under their uh, clothes. The Timorese uh, people took out flags, the, the flag that had been illegal in East Timor to wave, and they took out signs that said, Viva Janana Gushmao, who was the leader of the resistance uh, who was being held in jail at the time. And uh, they had uh, banners that said, uh, Referendum and, and Free East Timor. And they began chanting, and it was a very uh, peaceful uh, march. There was a scuffle at one point, but uh, it was a very isolated incident. And the protest was uh, uh, 
powerful but but, but nonviolent and and peaceful. Uh, they were waving the flag and they were chanting "Viva Timor." And then the Indonesian military personnel showed up. Next slide, and they began shooting. And uh, they they fired on unarmed men, women, and children. Uh, there was a woman named. Uh, there's a guy named Constancio Pinto, uh, who was uh, one of the organizers of the resistance, and he helped to organize this protest in the Santa Cruz uh, cemetery. His wife was there at the time, and she hopped over the fence, the wall separating the cemetery from the rest of the city. And uh, that was remarkable because it's a high wall, but it's also remarkable because she was seven months pregnant at the time. Um, about 200 people were killed in the Santa Cruz Cemetery that day, and another 200 were taken to so-called medical centers, where they were then interrogated and in many, in many cases killed. Um, Amy Goodman and Alan Nairn realized what was about to happen when it was happening, and they went and they stood in between the Timorese people and the Indonesian soldiers. They held up their passports and their tape recorders and said, we are watching you, don't do anything stupid. The uh, Indonesian soldiers... Uh, uh, took the tape recorders, pulled out the tapes, smashed their cameras, uh, and began attacking Amy uh, on the ground. Alan jumped on top of her uh, to protect her. They turned their M16s around like clubs and began bashing Alan with them. They fractured his skull, and he very nearly died. Amy Goodman and Alan Nairn said later that they believe the only reason that they survived is because the Indonesian soldiers probably realized that they were from the same place that the Indonesian uh, weapons, the, weapon, the M16s, had come from, and if they killed Americans, there would be very serious consequences, so instead the Indonesian military personnel went back to killing East Timorese. Max Stahl was the filmmaker who took the footage that you can see on that YouTube clip, and uh, he had to bury the tape in a grave, and then he went back in the cover of darkness and smuggled it out of the country. Amy uh, Goodman and Alan Nairn, of course, began telling their story on Pacifica Radio. Uh, I shouldn't say of course, you know, it's not... But they did. They told their story, uh, and it created shockwaves around the world. People were appalled by what they saw, and it was video footage uh, at a time when video footage was very hard to get, especially in places like East Timor. This was before the Internet was a widespread phenomenon of, of news uh, reliability. Uh, this was uh, at a time when TV and radio were still the primary, uh, the only real sources of news, and newspapers and, and so forth. So... Um, yeah, the, the, the Santa Cruz massacre was a shocking wake-up call to a lot of people around the world about what was going on in East Timor. And the Indonesian military said this was an isolated incident. This was a couple of soldiers who were angry about that skirmish we mentioned earlier, and they lost their temper, and they went and they killed some people. But the Timorese uh, people said that this was absolutely not an aberration. This sort of thing happened all the time, and the only thing that was different about this incident was that it was videotaped. And there were photographs that came out of this uh, slaughter but that it happened on a regular basis all over East Timor, and it was not an isolated incident. To support that point of view, uh, there was leaked a uh, quote from an Indonesian military personnel uh, who had said, a commander who had said that um, people who protest against the Indonesian government deserve to be shot, and we will shoot them. So that quote made it very clear that the Indonesian military was interested in actually punishing people who dared to protest against the Indonesian military hegemony and uh, the rule of the Indonesian government. Next slide. Well, when footage of the Santa Cruz massacre and news about what was going on in East Timor reached the United States, a lot of people in the U.S. were outraged and people around the world were outraged. Uh, and, and people wanted to do something. Uh, it's very frequent when people hear about horrible things going on overseas, they want to do something. I see it in my students all the time, and it is it is a beautiful um, demonstration of what solidarity really means and what it means to be human. When you see someone suffering and you think there might be something you could do to stop it, you do that. 
and we did it. Um, the the first meeting of the East Timor Action Network uh, was uh, three people in an apartment in White Plains, New York, and they got together and they said, "Okay, who are we? We're not anybody special or important. We don't have a lot of money. We don't have any political connections. We don't have in charge of a super PAC. Uh, we don't have any, uh, you know, lobbying connections. We don't have any. Uh, we don't know anybody on Capitol Hill. But this is supposed to be a democracy. We're supposed to have some say in what goes on and what our government does." Isn't that what it means to be members of a democracy, to be citizens in a democracy? So they started to organize. And as I say, people in the United Kingdom started to organize and people in Australia started to organize. Uh, and so the East Timor Action Network began springing up all over the United States. And by this time, I was a, a sophomore in college. And so I was encouraged to start the Florida chapter of the East Timor Action Network. There was one in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, there was one in Los Angeles and San Francisco and Chicago and Boston and Dallas, Texas and Atlanta, Georgia and dozens of other cities. And it was ordinary people, just like me and you, saying, what can we do? we got to do something. Um, and so we, we went out and we protested. And this is a picture of a, a good friend of mine named Nate Osborne, uh, who, who, who was protesting in Washington, D.C., and basically letting the world know, first of all, we had to let people know what was going on in East Timor, because a lot of people still didn't know. So we would give the version of the speech that I'm giving you now uh, over and over again. And we would um, set up, uh, you know... Uh, petitions and, and, and organize uh, postcard drives and try to get people to call their senators and their representatives and uh, call the White House and say, hey, we need to let East Timor vote. And uh, it's horrible that they're, they aren't allowed to vote and, and we're funding torture and we should cut off weapons until we can um, get, you know, uh, we can use our weapon sales as a lever, a leverage to, to get the Indonesian military to stop killing people in East Timor. It was very difficult for a long time. Um, as I say, I was a sophomore in New College in Sarasota, Florida, tiny liberal arts college, 700 students, no grades. And uh, I'd set up a little card table on Saturday morning and, and get there with petitions and postcards and say, hey, friends, come here, sign a petition, write a postcard. And they'd be staggering in with their hangovers like, oh, God, come back at noon, dude. Uh, and I had some friends who said to me, look, Piotrowski, this is cute. I mean, you know, you're doing something good, I guess, but it's ridiculous because this is just the way the world is. It's what Henry Kissinger called realpolitik. The way things are is the way things are. And, and who are you going to, who are you to change all of this? You can't change the whole world by having some stupid card table with a petition on it. You're going to organize a speaking tour. You're going to put out a newsletter. Who cares? That's not going to make anything change. Don't you understand how power works in this society? And of course, I was surrounded by a lot of people who were really into like critical theory by people like Derrida and Baudrillard and people like that and you know a lot of sort of disaffected people who smoked closed cigarettes and drank a lot of espresso and they were like you'll never understand the true depths of the horror that is power in this country and then the real elites have everything by the the, the, the neck and they, they can control everything with the blink of their eye and there's nothing we can do about it and despair really is the new hope and all this and, and I, I just couldn't go along with it I'm like but this is wrong this is, this is messed up this needs to change how's it going to change if we don't change it and um, it, it reminded me of that scene in Babe. If you ever saw that movie about the talking pig, there's a great scene where the duck says, they're watching, all the animals are watching like a pig get killed or something. And the duck goes, oh my God, that's horrible. And the cow turns to the duck and says, the way things are is the way things are. And the sooner you learn to accept that, the happier you'll be. 
And the duck says, the way things are stinks. I'm out of here. And he leaves the farm. And that's how my, I, I felt exactly like that duck. This is not okay. I am not all right with this happening. And we should not stand for this. We need to do something. But it felt like we were doing nothing. You, you, you can f very easily feel very small and ineffectual when you're doing work like this. Because uh, you send petitions off to your elected officials. And you call Congress. And you get, you know, some staffer that was hired last week who's a year older than you are. And they go, uh-huh, uh-huh, East Timor, thank you for your input. Goodbye. Click. And that's the end of it. Uh, most congressional offices didn't want to have anything to do with us. They didn't care what we had to say. They didn't express any concern about the people of East Timor. If they did, it was very fleeting. Oh, that's horrible. Goodbye. Click. Uh, the, the attitude among a lot of uh, U.S. congressional offices was, well, there's a lot of things going on all over the world, and we can't do everything. We can't be the world's policeman. And our, our point was always the same. We're not asking the United States to be the world's policeman. We're asking the United States to stop being the world's arms dealer and stop selling weapons to the Indonesian military that they use to kill people in East Timor and stop blocking U.N. action and, and so forth and so on. Now, I should point out that there were a few excellent exceptions to that rule among the U.S. Congress, including Russ Feingold, who was an awesome senator until he recently got defeated by, as The Onion put it, a paper bag full of money. Uh, Tammy Baldwin just got elected to the U.S. Senate. Hooray! And she was also a very early supporter of the East Timorese uh, need to vote. Um, self-determination movement, we should say, uh, and that that's in large part because the solidarity movement in East, uh, excuse me, in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, which included the woman who is now my wife, uh, was very uh, powerful in convincing Tammy Baldwin to take a stand and demand that East Timor be allowed to vote. Um, and the hard work of a lot of people elsewhere around the country um, demanding that Congress reflect the will of the people to preserve democracy and human rights and justice, even when it's not convenient for the United States government. And that's exactly what was going on in East Timor. And, um, and, and it felt like we were having no effect. Now, I should say, uh, I mentioned that I needed to tell you something about what Alan Nairn told me. And I should say that at this time, I attended a conference in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, I think that's the first time I met Alan Nairn. Uh, and he said that, and that was the first time I met my wife as well. Uh, the, Alan Nairn said at that conference, or some other time, I, I don't remember exactly when it was. But he told me, and I think it was in a room of other people, that if the Indonesian military has a, a suspected member of the resistance in their custody. And they receive one letter, just one letter, from somebody outside Indonesia or East Timor, saying, we know you have this person, you know, please don't violate their human rights and don't kill them, etc., etc. That letter will stop the Indonesian military from killing that person. He was told this by an Indonesian uh, official. And... That's that that again that changed my life. That made me realize just how powerful my voice can be as a member of this powerful western nation. And that's one of the reasons that I'm a part of Amnesty International is because I believe that that one letter might save someone's life. And you never know for sure and you very rarely ever hear anything about the cases that Amnesty International pursues in their urgent actions about political prisoners. But sometimes you do. And and they say, you know, if it weren't for Amnesty International, I might be dead right now. Uh, and that's a very powerful thing because it means that right now you can write a letter and very possibly save someone's life. Um, so I'm going to put a link to Amnesty International. Uh, and um, I encourage you to write some letters for Amnesty International because, as I say, it, it can do a lot of good. Anyway, for a long time it felt like the East Timor Action Network, uh, which later became the East Timor 
and Indonesia Action Network, uh, ETAN, it felt like we were sort of spinning our wheels, so to speak. It was very hard to get people to pay attention to what was going on. Um, I, I volunteered, you know, I was trying to organize on my campus, but it was a very insulated place. People were doing a lot of things already, and it was very hard to get people to join a new organization. However, I did organize a speaking event on the campus of New College, which was amazing. It was the biggest event, uh, biggest single event that was not curriculum related that I ever saw at New College, and it was, you know, hundreds of people packed into this tiny room, and it was just a amazing because we had this amazing woman um Nina Maria da Costa, who came to speak along with a guy named Max White, and it was it was unbelievable. It was such a great event, and uh, the the room you could hear a pin drop. Everybody listening to this amazing Timorese woman tell her story, and uh, it was a really beautiful event. And everybody was so grateful that I had organized it. Uh, and it wasn't just me; it was a lot of other people too. But um, it really felt good to see all the people that I had been telling about East Timor for so long, and and some of them had been very dismissive. Um, when that woman came to our campus, uh, everybody was just awed by her power and her commitment to nonviolence and her uh, amazing strength. And it was a really uh, excellent moment in my life. I'll never forget it. Um, but that was the exception to the rule. Most of the time it was petitions, letters, protests. We had lobby days where we'd go and meet with people. And most people, you know, if they cared, they felt like there was nothing they could do about it or they had other things they needed to do. And it was easy to feel like we were never going to achieve anything. But we kept at it, because that's what you do when something's wrong and you want to make it right. Next slide. In 1994, these planes, do you know what kind of planes they are? That's right, they're F-16s. Um, there were some F-16 fighter jets that were going to be sold by the U.S. military to the Indonesian military. And ETAN and other groups said, no, this is a really bad idea. The Indonesian military will use these attack jets to kill people in East Timor. Do not sell them these planes. And the Indonesian military, of course, and their representatives in the U.S. said, oh, forget it. No, that's never going to happen. We've changed since the Santa Cruz massacre in 1991. We've totally, everything's different now. We'll never use these. You can take our word for it. But ETAN was not satisfied, and there was a, a council of uh, a Catholic activists who said, no, this is not okay. Do not sell these planes to them. And eventually, the Indonesian military said, you know what? Everybody's always asking all these questions about East Timor. Forget it. We don't want your stupid planes. Well, that was interesting, because it showed that just by raising some noise, we might be able to stop the sale of weapons. Now, they went to the United Kingdom, and they bought some Hawk attack jets from them, and used them against the Timorese, so it wasn't a total victory. But it still was an interesting glimpse into the power of public protest, uh, as uh, carried out by ETAN and other groups. Next slide. In 1996, there was another boost in East Timorese visibility around the world when the Nobel Peace Prize went to these two men for their nonviolent efforts to bring about a resolution to the crisis that was happening in their homeland. The man on the left is Bishop Carlos Jimenez Bello. He was the uh, Roman Catholic bishop of East Timor at the time. And the man on the right is Jose Ramos Horta, who was a sort of international ambassador. Uh, he left East Timor as soon as the invasion took place, and he went around from country to country for the next 25 years, basically saying, uh, you know, this is what's going on in East Timor. Massive killings, uh, basically genocide and, and uh, slaughter, you know, lost my family. Uh, everybody I know has had some relative killed, uh, horrible bloodshed, massacres, uh, starvation, etc. Uh, world, please do something. I got to meet Jose Ramos Horta uh, in 1997 when I went to a workshop about nonviolence. There was a big conference in San Francisco, and uh, I stayed at a youth hostel, and, and I was there because I knew Jose Ramos Horta was going to be there, and I thought maybe I could meet him. And I wore my East Timor shirt on the first day, and one of the organizers of the conference came to me and said, Hey, 
you know about East Timor. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm involved in the East Timor Action Network and this and that. And the organizer said, do you want to be on the conference panel with Jose Ramos Horta? And I said, oh, my God, are you serious? Absolutely. And I got to be on the panel with him, and I met him, and I shook his hand, and, and he took his picture with me, and I don't know where that picture is today, and I'm really mad that I don't have that picture anymore. Maybe I do, but I can't find it. Anyway, uh, it was a really amazing event, and I got to talk about you know how I learned about East Timor and what was going on there and why it was so important for people in the U.S. to take action and so forth. Um, and it was just a really great conference and really great event and it, it was an amazing thing when the Nobel Peace Prize went to these two men because it meant that the world was paying attention and again it was in the news and everybody said what's East Timor and we were able to then step in and say let me tell you about East Timor funny you should ask and we could give them the version of the speech that I'm giving you now which is going to take 10 hours if I keep up at this pace so let me move on next slide this man is BJ Habibi I know <laughs> BJ uh Habibi followed Suharto. When Suharto was forced out of power in 1997, uh, it was an amazing story about, again, democracy and popular uprising in Indonesia. And that's a story you should look into about how the people of Indonesia demanded that Suharto leave uh, on their, you know, with their own nonviolent revolution, which you should look into because uh, it's an amazing story of popular revolt in and of itself. When Habibi got into power, one of the first things he did was to say, we are tired of dealing with East Timor. One of his uh, foreign his foreign minister, a guy named Ali Alatas, said, quote, East Timor is a pebble in our shoe. And he later wrote a book called The Pebble in the Shoe, uh, describing that East Timor is kind of being an annoyance, right? It's like, oh, East Timor. Everyone's always asking about East Timor. East Timor, you want to vote? Fine. East Timor, you can vote. And, and that was an amazing moment because it meant, oh, my goodness, the people of East Timor will finally get a chance to vote. Will they become part of Indonesia? Will they be an independent nation? Hallelujah. It's going to happen. But then Habibi said, yeah, we get to be in charge of security. Which was a problem because there was no way that was going to be a free and fair vote. That would be like having the Jews of Warsaw decide whether Poland was going to become part of Indonesia or not. Uh, part of Indonesia. Why would the Nazis ask the Poles to vote on becoming part of Indonesia? I know. Um, I got to have something funny along the way. So the the threat of Indonesian atrocities starting up again was very real. And in fact, it did. Next slide. Uh, what they did was they started organizing these militia groups uh, made up of people from East Timor and some Indonesian military personnel as well. Uh, they were coerced. They were paid off. They were threatened. They were, in some cases, drugged, perhaps. Um, and, and basically ordered to uh, join these militia groups. And the militia groups went from town to town telling people of East Timor, uh, look, if you vote for independence, we will kill you. We will kill your family to the seventh generation. Your streets will run red with blood. You may have a free country. We will burn it down and there will be no country for you to have. And to let you know we're not playing, they went ahead and killed some uh, civilians at a church called Lakisa, and there were other massacres as well. And it was a horrible series of atrocities all over again. And the vote was approaching in uh, August 1999. And uh, these militia groups were, they had totally free reign. The Indonesian military could easily have called them off at any time, and they didn't. And they were pressuring the people of East Timor, and there was a lot of threat that uh, the vote wouldn't be fair. And uh, if it, you know, if if if, if independence were voted for, uh, then the militia groups would carry out another wave of atrocities. But the people of East Timor said, we have to have this vote. There is no other way for us to get out from under the Indonesian military boot, and we have to use this opportunity to vote for our independence. So once again, people around the world were faced with a conundrum. Something horrible is happening. What can we do about it? Well, next slide. What they did was they organized. 
And um, they organized a group called the International Federation for East Timor, IFET, and they organized an observer project. The IFET-OP uh, got together 200 people from around the world, including 100 from the United States, including my friend Nate Osborne there in the yellow shirt, and they went to East Timor. Uh, they served as election observers, and they set up a website, and they reported regularly on what was going on. And this is before the internet allowed for instant, you know, sharing of pictures constantly and and all that. But but emails did come back and forth. Um, I was invited to be part of IFET OP. Um, I did not choose to go to East Timor for a variety of reasons. I was in grad school at the time. I was uh, didn't have a lot of money, and to be honest, I was scared that I might be hurt or killed if I went to East Timor. But the woman who is now my wife, uh, who has a lot more courage and moral fortitude than myself, did go to East Timor in 1999 as an election observer. And she served uh, in, a, in a village called uh, Suai. And she has some amazing stories to tell about her experiences there. And uh, if you're ever lucky enough to meet her, you'll get to hear them. Well, um, yeah, the... The, the preparations leading up to the vote in uh, August 1999 were uh, amazing. Um, th- there was a moment of uh, unbridled optimism, but also a lot of fear. Uh, the uh, militia groups were going from village to village and intimidating people and killing people. And the IFED observers were trying to document as much as they could. I went to California to serve as a sort of U.S. Um, coordinator, I guess you could say. Uh, actually, as the assistant U.S. coordinator, because Pam, the almighty and awesome Pam, who is the, one of the most awesome people I've ever met in my life, thou shalt not ever say anything bad about Pam, or I will kick your teeth in. Oh, wait, no. I'm a nonviolent activist. Dang it. I will, I will gaze disapprovingly at you if you ever speak ill of Pam, because Pam is just so amazing. Anyway, um, Pam was the U.S. coordinator. I got to be the assistant U.S. coordinator. Uh, and then when she went over to East Timor, Pam did. Uh, I got to be the sort of temporary U.S. coordinator. Because someone has to do all that boring stuff. You set up a website, and the website I set up was so ugly. I was, I was using this weird, like, aqua and white design. It was so stupid looking. I look back on it now, and I'm just like, what was I thinking? I was a stupid kid. That's what I was thinking. Uh, anyway, uh, 500 emails every day, sending out faxes and press releases and helping to coordinate the training of people that, before they went over and all the medical files and all that stuff. Someone's got to do all that boring office stuff. And I was like, Shh, I could do that. So I drove across the country from Florida to California and spent the summer in Watsonville. Uh, I got to live with Pam and her husband, Kurt, and uh, it was a really awesome summer. We watched The Simpsons and um, we hung out with uh, Lydia and um, Jean and... and uh, God, who is Gene? Anyway, there are some really cool guys. Um, and yeah, so anyway, uh, it was a great summer, and, but it was also horrifying because I we would get these reports about all the violence going on in East Timor, and I got kind of carried away with my own personal narrative there. I did a track up called Lost My Bowling Ball in Watsonville someday if you want to listen to that. Oh, boy. Anyway, um, yeah. So election day came, August 30th, 1999. Next slide. It was amazing. Uh, 98% of the population came out to vote. 98% of the population came out to vote in the United States on a good year. We have 60% of the eligible population that comes out to vote. And these were not people in East Timor who went down to their local polling place either. These people generally walked for hours through jungle terrain and mountain passes and standing out in the hot sun all day. But it was an amazing atmosphere. I saw these news reports about people coming out to vote and old people who had been waiting all their lives to cast this vote. And one report I saw said that the door on the polling station was literally coming off its hinges because people were cramming into the place. And it was so amazing and it was so beautiful to see this explosion of democracy and popular will. And finally, the people of East Timor had the vote that they had been wanting for so long. 
And then a week later, the results were announced, and 79% of the population had voted for independence. And the Indonesian military reacted as they said they would. Next slide. They started killing people all over again. Thousands and thousands of people killed. Um, the UN was forced to pull a lot of their people out of the villages, and the IFET uh, Observer Project had to pull their people out of East Timor altogether. Um, and Diane had to leave the village that she was staying in and the people she had gotten to know. And it was so heartbreaking to hear people from IFET, once they got back to the U.S., talk about the friends they had made in East Timor and the people they had worked with, and they couldn't leave. Nobody from East Timor was allowed to leave with them. So there were all these unanswered questions and all this fear and horror that was being left behind while the people in the U.S. were able to evacuate. And I remember I called over because I would call over before going to bed. It was, you know, 12 hours later. Um, I would call over before I went to bed. And, and one night, you know, before they got evacuated, I could hear the gunshots in the background and the woman was crying. And I, and I, of course, you know, what do you do in that situation? I said, are you okay? And she was crying harder. And she said, no, we're not okay. We don't know what's going to happen. We think we might die. And like an idiot, again, what can I do? I said, uh, and she said, call Congress, tell them to do something. Uh, because the U S government was saying nothing. It refused to take a stand. It refused to put any pressure on Indonesia to get them to call off their militia groups. Indonesia was pretending as though this was all just a civil war happening in East Timor. Thousands of people being killed. Alan Nairn was one of the only journalists who stayed in East Timor at the time. And I remember at one point he asked me to let the news organizations of the world know uh, that he was doing a press conference. So I called up the different places, or sent faxes and emails and stuff. And I remember I called the BBC uh, office in New York, maybe, Washington, D.C., or somewhere in the U.S. And I said, you know, Alan Nairn's doing a press conference about what's happening in East Timor today. And the guy goes, oh, yeah, right, where is he? Is he in Darwin, you know, Australia, Jakarta, Indonesia? And I said, no, he's in Dili, East Timor. And, and there was silence. And I said, hello? And the guy just said, oh, that man's crazy. Uh, but, of course, the, the, the point is that he's very committed to telling the truth. And, and even if it puts him in risk, and it has many times, Alan Nairn's been in horrible danger repeatedly because of his commitment to reporting the truth and letting the truth be known. Um, yeah. He's an amazing example of what a brave, courageous journalist looks like. Uh, him and Amy Goodman both. Amy went to East Timor uh, after the election and um, reported on what was going on there. Not during the violence itself, but um, as soon as the Indonesian military left, which they eventually did. Um, at one point before they left, though, uh, the, um, the, the UN was going to pull all of its people out of its compound. The one compound uh, where they still had people in the capital city of Dili. There had been 500 Timorese who crowded into that compound. And uh, this one woman, and I don't remember her name, and I'm really sorry that I don't, but you can find it. I know I wrote about her on my blog at one point. Um, she had she had an eye injury and she had an eye patch. And I believe she died in the most recent Libya uh, fighting. Um she was a UN worker who, I think, maybe she's a journalist. Uh, anyway, there were UN workers and journalists who stayed in the UN compound and said, we will not leave because if we leave, all these people will die. And again, they sort of put their lives on the line in order to help other people. And it was an amazing show of solidarity and, and human connection. Um, well, after a while, the Indonesian military uh, called off its militia groups and eventually the Indonesian military left. Most of the militia leaders went to Indonesia as well. Um, next slide. Uh, Sandy Berger, during the most horrible parts of this uh, 1999, what they call Black September in East Timor, uh, the violence and killings and, you know, 200,000 people from East Timor were put into trucks and taken over into refugee camps in West Timor and refused to let leave. Um, Sandy Berger was the White House uh, National Security Advisor for President Clinton at the time. 
And the U.S. had just intervened in Kosovo. And uh, there was a lot of talk about how the United States will always stand up for humanitarianism and helping enforce international law and human rights and blah, blah, blah. And at that time, a reporter stood up and said, Mr. Berger, if the Clinton administration is so committed to human rights, why is the, why is the U.S. government doing nothing about what's going on in East Timor? And Sandy Berger said, and I quote, My daughter's dorm room up in college is a little messy, too. Maybe we shouldn't send some troops in there, too, huh? So that let us know just how seriously the Clinton administration was taking the question of human rights and democracy and justice and international law and the rest of it. Next slide. Well, eventually the Indonesian military destroyed everything that it wanted to destroy and stole everything it wanted to steal. 70% of the buildings in the capital city of Dili were burned to the ground. Uh, many, many other villages were destroyed and uh, buildings burned down and people killed and all sorts of horrible things happening. Uh, for several years, the uh, country of East Timor was administered by a UN transitional government. And then on May 20th, uh, 2002, East Timor declared its independence for the second and hopefully final time. And today, East Timor is a very peaceful and uh, free country. Um, it's a very poor country now. Um, it's the poorest country in Asia, one of the poorest in the world. Um, there is a lot of oil wealth that's coming into the country, um, but there's a lot of rebuilding that needs to happen in East Timor, and it's a very slow process, and there are a lot of problems that are taking place in East Timor right now. Unemployment is very high. Uh, it, it's The economy is very sluggish, and... Um, the young people often don't have a lot to do, so uh, there's a lot of sort of disorganization among young people in East Timor. Uh, sometimes that flares up into sort of sectarian violence of various sorts. Um, but the people of East Timor are amazing people, and I was, next slide, lucky enough to visit in 2005. Uh, this is a photograph of myself on the right there, uh, my wife, Diane, in the middle, and a guy on the left who runs a uh, community training workshop. Uh, his name is, I swear this is true, Elvis. Uh, he um, runs a yeah a little community workshop where people can learn how to you know fix their houses and repair small engines and things like that. Um, I love the fact that this photograph has the you know sort of destroyed house there, but it also has the beautiful flowers in the lower left corner because that's really what East Timor is to me. Uh, it's a place that has been ravaged by geopolitical interests and you know uh, very powerful military forces, but it also has a lot of beauty in it and. Um, it's an amazing place. I was obviously profoundly moved and affected when I went there. Um, and we have a sister city group in uh, Madison right now that works with uh, the community of Ainaro, where this picture was taken. We do a bike ride every year to raise funds for East Timor. Um, and there's there's a lot more to say about the story of East Timor, but, but that's where I'm going to end it here. Um, there's a lot, as I say, I could... A, a, append to this discussion, but there's only a few things I want to say in closing. Um, number one, East Timor is a, a, a violent story, a painful story, a story of despair and, and, and pain, but it is also a story of hope. Because if ever there were a, a group of people on the planet who ever had the right to say, okay, we give in, it's the Timorese people. Uh, but they did not. And they refused to accept that the world did not have enough people in it who were willing to stand up and say, this is wrong, and we need to do what is right. And, and, and they won. And, and the story of East Timor is a story of resistance. And Janana Gushmao, the leader of the resistance, said, resistir e vansir, which means to resist is to win. The, the very act of resisting injustice and violence and suffering is an act of victory. And it is only when we refuse to do something about the evil in the world that we are ever defeated. Um, and the Timorese people won through nonviolence. And that's the other point I wish to highlight here. Um, 
the 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 school of nonviolent thinking is one that is often associated with, rightly with Martin Luther King and Gandhi, but it is a, it is a school of thinking that is just as important today as it was in those eras. And the people of East Timor won their battle with oppression and injustice and hideous violence and atrocity, and they won it with nonviolent means because by the time the Santa Cruz massacre happened, the Timorese resistance understood that there was no way they were going to win a military conflict. Um, and if they had won somehow, miraculously, that war, most of the people who died in that war would have been Timorese. And this is the same reason that the resistance in the South African uh, apartheid era understood that violence was not a way to win that conflict. Nonviolence seeks to change the actual situation itself, because when a violent change happens, the group that becomes powerful during a violent revolution must maintain its power through violence. And nothing really changes. All we get is musical chairs that rearrange who is in charge of the unjust power structure. However, um, if a nonviolent revolution takes place, as a professor friend of mine from New College, Paul Buchanan, explained, what happens is that everyone's consciousness is raised. And what you can do is you can change the very structure of the society itself. Rather than just replicating the same structure with different people in charge, you can actually transform the structure itself. And that's what Martin Luther King gave to the United States, was a, an ability to transform itself, so that white supremacy no longer ruled the day in the violent segregationist form that it did in the middle of the 20th century. And the other thing I want to emphasize about East Timor is that it's a story about each of us. Because, as I mentioned, I had friends during the height of the Timorese atrocities who told me that I was being a naive idealist and that it was really silly for me to waste my time thinking that I could make some change in the way the world worked just by standing on street corners with signs or sending protest petitions or uh, visiting congressional offices and trying to make my voice heard. And they were wrong. And I called them up when East Timor became independent in 2002. And I said, ha, you were wrong. And I want you to admit it. And this is not an ego thing. This is not about, eh, I was right, you were wrong. No, this is about, I want every person on the planet to understand the way things really work. The way things actually change is because people work on them. Because we put in, we stand up together with people who are suffering and oppressed around the world. And we demand change happen. And when we do that, we can make change happen. But when we accept this postmodern, jaded, first world perspective of, oh, everything's just so complicated, and the powers that be have everything so sewn up, and they have control of our minds through the media, and there's no way we can ever achieve anything, those people are lying. And it's not just that I think they're wrong, I know they're wrong. The story of East Timor proves that that mindset is the mindset of defeatism. And I will never be a part of it. And nobody who hears my words should ever be a part of it either. either. That mindset is a cynical perspective fixated on what's easiest. It is a mindset brought about by shortcuts and easy answers, microwave ovens, instant messaging, uh, 10 gigabyte per second downloads, this idea we have in the world today that everything needs to be instantly available, and if it's not, there's no point seeking it out. Because what happened in East Timor was wrong, but what happened in response to the events of East Timor was right. It was the most beautiful manifestation of human beings coming together around the world and saying, this is wrong, it needs to change, and we changed it. 
and I am incredibly honored and humbled and lucky to have been part of that movement. And if nothing else, I want to remind everybody, as I remind my students constantly, that the story of East Timor is a case study in how the world can be a better place, and it will be if we work on it. So, thank you for listening, and please continue to work on making the world a better place so that we never have another situation like happened in East Timor. We can bring justice to the place where it is denied around the world. We can improve the fate of workers and uh, oppressed people in all parts of the world, of all colors and all backgrounds and all religions. This, this idea of human rights and the need for justice and freedom cuts across every political stripe. It doesn't matter if you're Republican, Democrat, left-wing, right-wing, conservative, liberal, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, atheist, Buddhist, whatever. Old, young, male, female, transgendered, uh, heterosexual, homosexual, queer, whatever. The, the, if you believe that human beings have rights and that justice and freedom and uh you know those things are important and that oppression and evil and violence those things are wrong we need to all stand up together which side are you on you need to make a decision and you need to do things to to stand up for that side and i hope you'll be on the side of justice and what's right because that's where i'm going to be and as cornell west says when i go down i'm going down fighting and i hope you'll be there with me Thank you very much for listening. I'm going to stop talking. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. Wow, 80 minutes. Thank you for listening, people. I, <laughs> um, yeah, when I get going, blah, 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 uh, Yeah, get in touch. ESP at FBESP.org. Thank you. Viva Timor-Leste.